And now, Spotlight Montana with Laurel Staples. It's based on Stephanie Land's memoir titled Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and a Mother's Will to Survive. It's a raw account of her experience surviving domestic violence, being a single mom, and dealing with poverty. The best-selling book is now a hit Netflix series, and Missoula plays a big role in Stephanie's story. In this Spotlight Montana, Stephanie talks about her series, her experience, and what she's working on next. Your best-selling book, we'll start with that, Made, but also now a hit series on Netflix since its release, which was just a couple of weeks ago, it's just exploded. What has this time period been like for you? Boy, um, I, I really never expect um, things to go well. <laughs> so um, it's it's been really surprising. The, um, the reaction to the series has, has been incredible. Um, I think it touched a lot of lives, you know, um, there are a lot of women out there who deal with uh, domestic violence and um, some sort of abuse in some way. And and I, I think they saw themselves either as um, a survivor, a victim, or, or just a mother um, trying to feed their kids. So you're homeless? No, um, no, I wouldn't say that. So you have a home? So Maddie's dad just, um... He drinks and uh, he blacks out and punches stuff. Punches Maddie? No, no, just last night, um, last night was different and I got scared. Did you file a police report? No. Do you want to call the cops now? It's not too late. And say what, that he didn't hit me? I, I have been a little overwhelmed by the attention on social media, um, but I, I'm kind of getting used to it, I guess. <laughs> so it's an adjustment process, of course. And, uh, and you mentioned that it was surprising to you. In what ways did you find it surprising? Well, my history of writing about being a single mom on food stamps, um, it began with um, writing uh, essays and articles on the internet. And um, the comment section was never all that kind. <laughs> so, um, when the book came out, that was kind of, I just expected a, an expanded version of that. Um, you know, a lot of people, um, like to blame poor people for their situations and, um, come up with a lot of reasons why they are in the place that they are. And, um, so it's always surprising to me when, when people show empathy and, and compassion, um, for people who are in those situations. You know, this is obviously building awareness. And do you feel the tide changing because of this? Well, I haven't listened in on some recent legislation discussions about um, the, the plans and the infrastructure deals that they're doing. Um, I hope so. I mean, from my side of things, just from what I'm hearing in messages and, and comments and tweets, um, I, I, I feel like a lot of people are realizing, my goodness, low-wage workers don't even have a sick day um, and, and that they don't work for living wages and just how difficult it is to even get in to see a doctor when you're poor. Um, uh, just a lot of things that I think a lot of people don't even think twice about is 10 times harder or 10 times more expensive when you're a poor person. Um, and it, it seems like people are really realizing that. Right. And there's a lot of stigmas and misconceptions out there. 
tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that. Well, I, I think um, I think it's a defense mechanism, honestly. I, I think you know someone who is in a position where they like to feel very secure in their lives, um, like to feel housing secure, you know, like um, nothing could ever go wrong. Um, they look at someone who, like me, is in poverty um, and start to list all of the things that I did wrong. I, I didn't go to college right out of high school. I didn't get married before I had my first kid, you know, and just um, all of these things that they tell themselves were bad decisions. And since they make good decisions, then they will never end up like me. And, and what that grows to also is um, because I brought it on myself and they don't feel like they need to help people in my position. Um, and so I, I think it's, um, we, we place a lot of blame on the poor and, and the, the poor can't have nice things. And, you know, there's just, the list goes on and on. Well, as I mentioned, you know, this series, as you know, is a hit series on Netflix. How much involvement did you have in the filming of this series and being on the set? I had very little. Um, I was invited to the set, but of course, COVID, and I would have had to quarantine for two weeks. And that's a long time to be away from my family. And all of my kids were in remote school, and I just didn't want to put that on my husband. Um, and uh, but I did spend a weekend with John Wells and Molly Smith-Metzler and Aaron John Tao, uh, and we toured around Port Towns in Washington, where a lot of the book takes place. And um, I showed them all the places I lived, and um, we ate at the restaurant where my mom refused to buy me a burger, and John Wells bought me a burger. <laughs> um, it it was a it was a wonderful time, um, but I I was not involved in the script or, or anything beyond that. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of thankful for that. I, I don't really think in fiction. And so it, I, I think I would have been nitpicking over details. <laughs> well, when it was finished and you finally got a chance to watch the series, what was that like for you? Did it feel like you were reliving uh, your, your life? Pretty much. Um, so the first two episodes I watched with Story, who is my kid who's in the book, and um, we watched it on my laptop, like snuggled in bed together, uh, because I wasn't really sure how it was going to affect me or them, really. And and it was it was pretty traumatizing. Um, it was it was really triggering. Um, Story turned to me and said, "Was it really like that?" And and I had to say yes. Um, as far as their dad is concerned. And um, so it, it was, uh, that first watch was, was pretty difficult for both of us. And when I was watching the series, I'm not, I don't remember if it was the second episode, but there's the line there, get off that carpet. That was a real powerful turning point. Um, tell me about that. Well, Danielle is a fictionalized character, so, um, I wished I had had a friend like that um, when I was in that position that where I was laying on the floor, not knowing what to do. Um, I felt like I was the bad person in the equation. Um, I was told that I was, I was told I was a horrible person and like I was overreacting. And um, the court said that a reasonable person wouldn't feel threatened by, by his actions. And, I can go on and on about all the things that people told me. And um, I, I wish that I had told someone 
or that someone had told me to be angry. Um, I didn't believe that I was allowed to be angry at all. Um, I, I felt like I had to be a very um, soft-spoken, mild-mannered, you know, very adult person um, because in the court's eyes, I had taken a child from a stable home. So what are some of the big differences between the series and the book? Um, I think the series follows the book very closely as far as emotionally, um, as long as my, or the series follows the book. Um, yeah, not only emotionally, but, um, very close to my lived experience. Um, a lot of the characters have been fictionalized and added. Um, there is of course, um, a lot more diversity in, in the series than there was in the book, um, which, you know, when you write a memoir, you have to write what happened. And, and I lived in a very white area and I'm a white person and I was very isolated. And, um, I, I had a lot of privileges in life. Um, and, and I think what they did with the series just, um, makes, it makes it look like it does in the real world instead of um, a very secluded white part of Northwest Washington. So I have to ask, and I noticed a lot of people were asking online, will there be a second season? And I'm not sure if that's something that can be revealed at this time or what's in the works. I have no idea. They don't tell me anything. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. I can't make any, any speculations even. What, ne what project's next for you? Will we see another book? Yeah, um, I, I am supposed to be working on a book right now, um, uh, but it's called Class and it is about um, the, the barriers that low-income people experience when trying to access higher education. All right, well, we look forward to seeing that. Uh, uh, your book, Vanity Fair, just coming out with an article yesterday and you probably saw that the title, you think Netflix is made is hard to watch. Good. That's the point. Your reaction to that? I really loved that article. Um, I, I loved how they pointed out, you know, if you feel some discomfort, it's, it's in my belief, it's because you've told yourself they've brought it on themselves. And so I don't have to help them when really they didn't bring it on themselves at all. They just don't have access to the same support and resources that a lot of other people do. Um, I, I think a lot of people are uncomfortable when they realize their privilege and, and what kind of invisible support helped them get ahead in life. And it's, it's a hard thing to sit with um, when you're going over all of the internal beliefs that you had about, you know, the, the homeless encampment in town and, um, and having to rethink all of that. So um but I, I thought that was an excellent article. I read it twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, and speaking of the, the homeless camp in Missoula, for those unfamiliar, first of all, share a little bit about what brought you to Missoula and what that process was like. Well, I, um, I grew up in Alaska and Alaska is a pretty hard place to live. And um, so I, I decided to move to Montana. Um, because of the book Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck um, and David James Duncan. Um, and I stopped off in Port Townsend for a little bit and decided on Missoula um, because David James Duncan lives 
here um, and filled out applications for college and was accepted or no, it wasn't accepted. I had the applications um, and found out I got pregnant and um, Missoula became kind of a, um, a mythical wonderland to me. Um, the brochures of U of, M, U of M were just fantastic, you know, and um, I really wanted to go to the creative writing program and be a writer. And it took about six years to finally get here. Um, but, but we made it. And you've been here, as you mentioned, around 10 years. Yep. It'll be 10 years in December. Your favorite parts of Missoula. What's your favorite? A lot of the favorite parts of Missoula are, are no longer here. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, for sure. <laughs> you know, I miss the old seedy, dirty bars and um, I miss being part of kind of a service industry that, you know, we, it really felt like a community for a while there, the family friendly Fridays um, and the concerts in the parks. And we used to live right downtown and we could just walk everywhere. And it was, it was wonderful. Um, but it, it seems to have changed a lot in the last few years, especially. And um, that, that saddens me quite a bit. Um, some friends of mine had have to move away because they can't afford to live here anymore. So um, I don't know. I, I hope the core part of Missoula keeps shining through. Um, but I have admittedly not been out much lately. So <laughs> I don't I don't I don't really know what the what the feel is out there. And you mentioned the homeless camp. And of course, we've been covering so much about that. Um, what would you like to see change here in Missoula to address some of that? Well, a lot of the conversation around making a physical place for them to be and, and creating a space for them. Um, a lot of the comments are, if we make it better, then more of them will come here. And I don't really see any problem with that because, you know, whether they're a homeless or a houseless person um, two towns away or here, I mean, they're still in that situation. It's not something that you choose and it's not something that you you want for your children, especially. And so um, I, I, I wish there was a bit more compassion. Um, and, and especially now that it's there's a lot more visibility about it. Um, I just, I don't know. I, I always hope that people are actually good inside and, and they'll be empathetic toward those people who are just trying to survive and, and make a living and support their families. And as you discovered going through this whole uh, experience that it seems like the whole system from the court system to services to, you know, trying to buy groceries with um, your SNAP card, it's like the whole system is stacked against you. How do we get that to change? Well, I, I think one thing that we have to do is abolish work requirements. Um, you know, for most people to access services, you have to prove um, very specifically that you are working at least um, either 80 hours a month or 20 hours a week. And if you're not able to do that, then you can't access programs um, if you have a child over six or you're um, what's called an able-bodied um, adult without dependence. And I, I just, I think that's ridiculous. I don't know why we ask people to prove that they're working to get what comes to be a dollar per person per meal per day. Um, I, I think if people are hungry, then they should have 
food, especially mm-hmm. children. Um, you know, I, I am always amazed that our, our children are out of the equation when it comes to um, universal childcare and, and universal um, preschool, universal health care for kids. Um, I, I just feel like we would at least take care of the children, but we're still pointing to their parents and saying that they, they don't want to work when really they're, they're working harder than anybody else. Well, and it seemed like, and then with the court system and everything, it seemed like everywhere you turned, you ran into a roadblock out there. Um, It's just, um, you know, I I know with this series in your book, you know, it's creating awareness and and hopefully we can see this tide turn. Thanks to you. (laughs) I hope so. And I, I, you know, not just thanks to me. I hope my story opens up a lot of doors for other people to, to talk about their experiences. Um, I'm a very privileged version of this story. Um, you know, black and brown people have it way worse than I did. And um, I, I really think we need to listen to those members of our communities. So you probably are hearing from lots of people going through something similar. And if there's someone out there that is experiencing and caught up in the system like you were, your message to them. I've always said, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, I, I wished that I had been more honest with um, the struggles that I was having. But every time I posted on Facebook about something that I was going through, someone would tell me that someone else had it much worse. And um, I just say, you know, we should stop that rhetoric. And um, people are struggling, you know, and everybody struggles in some way. And the thing is, is that there's shame attached to struggle. And, you know, I, I feel like the more that we are vulnerable and honest and tell people that we need them and that we need them to help us in some way, you know, the, the, the less that will be a shameful thing. Well, tell me about your family now and what your life is like now. Um, well, I got married a couple years ago and, um, he adopted my youngest who is now seven. Um, so we do have that child together. And then he was a full-time single dad when I met him, which is kind of what got him the first date. And, um, and so we've been together almost three years now and have a blended family. His, his kid oldest, uh, at 16 and then story is 14. Um, and we have three dogs and <laughs> living a pretty, pretty good little existence up here. Well, wonderful. Well, congratulations on, on everything that's happening to you. Is there anything that you want to talk about or mention that I haven't touched on that you would like our listeners to know? Um, I, I think one thing that's on my mind, I, I mean, they, um, I don't know. I know that it's been talked about a lot, but the, they just announced, or, they just said the the cause of death for Gabby Petito and and um, and that that really affected me and I'm sure it's affecting a lot of survivors right now um, or people who are in abusive relationships um, and I think you know one thing that the series does really well is it shows just how dangerous um, emotional abuse can be and and how how violent it really is even though you know you you might not have bruises or marks it's still something that can absolutely devastate you and and ruin your life. And 
and the the news this morning was was showing that it can be deadly too. So it's um, it's something that I I have found myself talking a lot about my experience lately, um, and I'm saying a lot of things that I haven't said um, before. And so I don't know. I just I I reach out to you know the survivors who are affected by the news this morning and and by the series as a whole. Do you have some events planned where um, you can meet with survivors or those going through it? Um, I, I'm a public speaker. So a lot of times I do um, speak for organizations who mainly um, help domestic violence survivors like the YWCA and, and other nonprofits. Um, I, I try to talk about it a lot on social media and, um, I'm doing a book event for the Montana Book Festival on Thursday um, with Molly Smith Metzler, uh, and I'm sure we'll bring it up. (laughs) Well, so much going on for you. And I saw, and as you you mentioned, you're very active on Twitter, and I love that. You know, it it, um, makes me feel like I'm talking to you and being in touch with you, and I'm sure all your followers feel that way too. Um, I noticed in one of your tweets that... uh, a portion of the proceeds from your best-selling book made will be donated to local organizations for single moms. Tell me about that. Yeah. So you can go down to fact and fiction and um, purchase a book there and I will personalize it and sign it for you. And um, Mara who owns fact and fiction said they're going to donate a portion of the proceeds and asked me um, what organization I preferred. And I said, mountain home. Um, They are, an organization who is very dedicated to helping young single moms. And um, I, I did a speaking gig with, with some of their um, employees and the people who work there and they're just all really fantastic people. So. Yeah. Oh no, I agree. Well, anything else that you'd like to share as we wrap this up? Oh, I think you about covered it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll be following you and, um, and uh, follow what's next in your life. And uh, I just want to tell you how much of a big fan I am and how um, uh, uh, I'm just so proud of what you're doing. Yeah. And thank you again for this interview. Thank you.